0: Section 6 of Just Sixteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Just Sixteen by Susan Coolidge. Who Ate the Queen's Luncheon? you can imagine the state of excitement into which Ottilie le breton was thrown when one day in june her father the seigneur of sark came home and told her that the queen who was cruising about the channel in the royal yacht had notified him of her intention of landing at sark the next thursday and of lunching at the Signore. it sounds such a fine thing to be the daughter of the seigneur of sark that perhaps you will imagine that ottilie was used to kings and queens and fine company of all sorts and wonder that she should feel so much excited on this occasion not at all the seigneur of Sark is only a quiet invalid clergyman who owns his little island just as other english gentlemen do their estates letting out the land to farmers and collecting his rents and paying his taxes like other people and ottilie was a simply brought-up girl of fourteen Who knew much less of the world than most girls of her age in boston or new york had never been off the channel islands and never set eyes on a crowned head in her life and she felt exactly as any of us would if we were suddenly told that a queen was coming to take a meal in our father's house queens are not common apparitions in any of the channel islands and least of all in little sark it is a difficult place to get to even for common people the island which is only three miles long is walled off by a line of splendid cliffs over three hundred feet high its only harbor is a strip of beach defended by a tiny breakwater from which a steep road is tunnelled up through the rocks to the interior of the island in rough weather when the wind blows and the sea runs high which is the case five days out of seven in summer and six and a half days out of seven in winter boats dare not make this difficult landing which is called by the natives, the Crew, or Hole. It is reported that some years since, when the lords of the Admiralty were on a tour of inspection, they sailed all round Sark, and sailed away again, reporting that no place could be discovered where it was possible to land, which seemed to the Sarkites a very good joke indeed. There are four principal islands in the Channel Group. Alderney and Jersey, from which come the cows all of us know about. Guernsey, whose cattle, though not so celebrated on this side of the sea, are held by the islanders as superior to all others, and Sark, the smallest and by far the most beautiful of the four. It is a real storybook island. The soft sea climate and the drifting mists of Gulf Stream nourish in its green valleys all manner of growing things. Flowers flourish there as nowhere else. Heliotropes grow into great clumps, and and red-and-pink geraniums into bushes. Fuchsias and white-starred jasmines climb to the very roofs of the mossy old farmhouses, which stand knee-deep, as it were, in vines and flowers. Long links of rose-colored bindweed lie in tangles along the dusty roadside. You tread on them as you walk through the shady lanes, between hedgerows of ivy and sweetbriar and bryony, from whose leaves shine out little glittering beetles in mail coats of flashing iridescent green, like those which the Cuban ladies wear on their lace dresses as a decoration. There is only one wagon kept for hire on the island, and all is primitive and peaceful, and full of rest and repose. But there are wonderful things, too, as well as beautiful ones. Strange spouting-holes in the middle of green fields, where the sea has worn its way far inland, and, with a roar, sends sudden shocks of surf up through its chimney-like vent caves too full of dim green light in whose pools marvellous marine creatures flourish the fruitage and bloom of the ocean or strange spines of rock-path linking one end of the island with the other by a road not over five feet wide from whose undefended edges the sheer precipice goes down on either side for hundreds of feet into the ocean there are natural arches in the rocks also, through which the beautiful blue-green sea glances and leaps. All about the island the water is of this remarkable color, like the plumage of a peacock or dragonfly's glancing wings, and out of it rise strange rock shapes, pyramids and obelisks, and domes, over which white surf breaks constantly. Some of the most remarkable of these rocks are beneath the seigneurie whose shaven lawns and walled gardens stretch to the cliff-top and command a wide sea-view. It is a fine old house, with terraces and stone balustrades, over which vines cluster thickly, and peacocks sit, spreading their many-eyed tails to the sun, as if trying to outdo the strange, flashing, iridescent sea. Otillie herself always fed these peacocks, which were old family friends. There were six of them, Bleuet and Cramoisy the parents of the flock who had been named by mrs le breyton who was a frenchwoman perry and fidefise and lorenzo the magnificent and the great panjandrum these last christened by otillie herself on account of their size and stately demeanour the beautiful creatures were quite tame they would take food from her hand and if she failed to present herself at the accustomed time with her bowl of millet and bread they would put their heads in at the terrace windows and scream Till she recollected her duty and came to them i am afraid that the peacocks were rather neglected for the few days preceding the queen's visit for everybody at the seigneury was very busy mr le breton as a general thing lived simply enough his wife had died when otilly was only six years old miss niffin the governess marie the cook two housemaids and an old butler who had served the family for a quarter of a century made up the establishment indoors Otilly had her basin of porridge and cream, and her slice of bread at eight o'clock in the morning, and bread and milk and kettle-tea for supper, with now and then a taste of jam by way of treat. The servants lived chiefly on Jersey soup, a thick broth of oatmeal, vegetables, and fish, with a trifle of bacon or salt-beef to give it relish. Mr. Le Breton had his morning coffee in his study, and the early dinner which he shared with Otilly and Miss Niffin, was not an elaborate one. These being the customs of the seigneury, it can easily be imagined that it taxed every resource of the establishment to provide suitably for the queen's entertainment. All the island knew of the important event and longed to advise and help. The farmers sent their thickest cream and freshest strawberries and lettuces, desirous to prove their loyalty not to their sovereign only, but also to their landlord. Marie, the cook, spent the days in reading over her most difficult recipes and could not sleep at night a friend of hers once second cook to the earl of dunraven but now retired on her laurels into private life offered to come for a few days to assist and to fabricate a certain famous game pasty of which it was asserted the english aristocracy art inordinately fond peter the butler crossed over to guernsey twice during the week with a long list of indispensables to be filled up at the shops there hampers of wine came from london and hothouse grapes and nectarines from friends in jersey The whole house was in bustle and nothing was spoken of but the queen and the queen's visit what she would wear and say and do whom she would bring with her and what sort of weather she would have for her coming this last point was the one on which Ottilie was most solicitous a true child of sark she knew all about its tides and currents the dangers of the channel islands and the differences which a little more or less wind and sea made in the navigation of them She could recollect one stormy winter when a Guernsey doctor, who had come over to set a broken arm, was detained for three weeks on the island, in plain sight all the time of his own home, in St. Peterport, but as unable to get to it as if it had been a thousand miles away. "'It would be dreadful if the Queen came, and then could not get away again for three weeks,' she said to herself. "'It would be awfully interesting to have her here, of course, but I don't quite know what we should do, or what she would do.' she tried to make a picture of it in her mind but soon gave up the attempt provisions are scarce sometimes on sark when the wind blows and the boats cannot get in there would always be milk and vegetables and fruit if it were summer and perhaps chickens enough could be collected to hold out but there was something terrible in the idea of a queen without butcher's meat otillie's imagination refused to compass it her very first thought when the important day dawned was the weather she waked with the first sunbeam and ran at once to the window. When she saw a clear sky and the sun rising out of a still sea, she gave a scream of delight. "'What is the matter?' asked Miss Niffen, sleepily from the next room. "'It's good weather,' replied Ottilie. "'We've got the most beautiful day for the Queen to come in.' Miss Niffen's only answer was a little groan. She was a small, shy person, and the idea of confronting royalty made her dreadfully nervous— oh if the day were only over she said to herself and she longed to plead a headache and stay in bed but she dared not besides she felt that it would be cowardly to desert her post on such an important occasion and leave Ottilie alone so she braced her mind to face the awful necessity and began to dress mr le breton awakening about the same time gave a groan a good deal like miss Niffin's. he was a loyal subject and felt the honour that was done him by the Queen's inviting herself to luncheon. But, all the same, invalids do not like to be put out of their way, and he too wished the day well done. Ten to one I shall be laid up for the month to pay for it, he reflected. Then he too braced himself to the necessity, and rang for hot water, determined to do his duty as a man and a seigneur. Otillie was perhaps the only person in the house who was really glad to have the day come. The servants were tired and fretted with a sense of responsibility. Marie had passed a dreadful night, full of dreams of failure and spoiled dishes. "'Now just as sure as guns my rolls will have failed to rise this day of all the days of the year,' was her first waking thought. But no, the rolls were light as a feather, and the sponge and almond cakes came out of the oven delicately browned, and quite perfect in taste and appearance. Nothing went wrong, and when Mr. Le Brayton, just before starting for the crew harbour to meet the royal party, took a look into the dining room to make sure that all was right, he said to himself that he had never seen a prettier or more complete little spread. The table was ornamented with hothouse fruit and flowers, beautifully arranged by Miss Niffen and Ottilie. All the fine old Le Brayton plate had been brought out and polished the napery shone like iced snow. There were some quaint pieces of old Venetian glass, jugs, dishes, and flagons, and a profusion of pretty confections, jellies, blanc crystallized fruits, and bonbons, to give sparkle and color. The light streamed in at the windows which opened on the terrace. From under the vines the flash of the waves could be seen. The curtains waved in the wind, which was blowing inland. Nothing could be prettier, The only discord was the noisy scream of the peacocks on the lawn, who seemed as much upset and disturbed by the great events as the rest of the household. "'Can't something be done to stop those creatures?' said Mr. Breton. "'Tie them up somewhere, can't you, O'Tilly, or send a boy to drive them down to the farm?' "'It's only because they're hungry,' replied O'Tilly, rather absently. "'I haven't given them their breakfast yet.' she was sticking long stems of fronded osmandas into a jar as a decoration for the fireplace, and scarcely noticed what her father said. It was some minutes after the carriage drove away before she finished. Then, with a sigh of relief, she brushed up the leaves she had scattered on the carpet and ran upstairs to change her dress. It would never do to be caught by the queen in a holland frock, with her hair blown about her eyes and green fingertips. The clock struck one as she fastened her white dress and padded smooth, the bows of her wide pink sash one was the hour fixed for the queen to land so there was no time to lose otillie only waited for a glance in at the door of the spare room where the queen if so minded was to take off her things she glanced at the bed with a sort of awe as the possible repository of a royal bonnet altered the position of a bowl of roses on the mantelpiece and then hurried down to join miss Niffin, who attired in her best black silk and a pair of lace mitts was seated decorously in the hall doing nothing. Otillie sat down beside her. It was rather a nervous waiting, and a long one, for half an hour passed, three quarters, and finally the clock struck two before wheels were heard on the gravel, and during all that time the two watchers spoke scarcely a word. Only once Otillie cried as a gust of wind blew the curtain straight out of the room. "'Oh, dear! I hope it isn't rough. Oh, dear!' Wouldn't it be dreadful if the Queen were to be sick? She would never like Sark again. I think Her Majesty would be used to the sea. She sails so much, replied Miss Niffen. The gust died away and did not blow the curtains any more. And again they sat in silence, waiting and listening. At last! cried Ottilie, as the distant roll of wheels was heard in the drive. Her heart beat fast, but she got up bravely, straightened her slender little figure, as became a Le Brayton, and walked out onto the porch. Her eyes seemed strangely dazzled by the sun, for she could see no one in the carriage but her father. It rolled up to the door, and Otillie felt a great throb of disappointment rise like a wave in her heart, and spread and swell. Mr. Le Brayton had come back alone. "'Papa!' she cried, as soon as she could speak. "'What has happened? Where is the Queen?' i hope nothing has gone amiss with her gracious majesty put in miss niffin from behind mr le breton got out of the carriage before he replied he looked tired and annoyed you can drive to the stable thomas he said the carriage will not be wanted then he turned to miss niffin her gracious majesty has decided not to land he went on the wind had sprung up and made rather a sea outside the breakwater nothing to signify by the Sark standard, but enough to deter inexperienced persons. I waited at the crew for nearly an hour, and every man, woman, and child on the island waited with me, with the exception of you, and Otilly, and the servants, and then the captain of the royal yacht signalled that he could not risk putting the Queen ashore in a small boat in such rough water. So the thing is given up. There was a certain latent relief in Mr. Le Breton's tone. "'Oh!' cried otillie stamping her foot how hateful of the wind to spring up it could have waited as well as not it has all the rest of the time to blow in and now all the nice preparations are thrown away and all our pleasant times spoiled and just as likely as the queen will never come to sark at all her voice died away in a storm of sobs i wish i could be assured of that remarked her father in a tone of weary resignation what I am afraid of is that she will come, or try to come, another day, and then there will be all this to do over again. He indicated by a gesture the door of the dining-room, from which queer muffled sounds were heard just then. "'Peter seems as much affected by this disappointment as you are, Ottilie. he added. "'Come, my child, don't cry over the matter. It can't be helped. Wind and waves oblige nobody, not even kings and queens.' there are compensations for all our troubles said miss Niffin in her primest tone we must bear up and try to feel that all is for the best miss niffen seemed to find it quite easy to be morally consoled for her share of loss in the giving up of the queen's visit how can you take it that way cried otillie who was not in the least in awe of miss Niffin. if i had broken my comb you would have said exactly the same i know you would there isn't any compensation for all this trouble it's no use my trying to feel that it's for the best. It isn't. We never know, replied Miss Niffin piously. Come, said Mr. Le Breton, desiring to put an end to the altercation. I don't know why we should go hungry because Her Majesty won't come and eat our luncheon. Take my arm, Miss Niffin, and let us have something to eat. Marie will break her heart if all her trouble and pains are not appreciated by somebody. He gave his arm to Miss Niffin as he spoke and moved forward to the dining-room. Otilly followed, wiping her eyes with her handkerchief, and feeling that the dainties would stick in her throat if she tried to swallow them. She was so very, very dreadfully disappointed. But when Mr. Le LeBreton reached the dining-room door, he stopped suddenly, as if shot, and gave a sort of shout. No one could speak for a moment. There was the feast, so prettily and tastefully arranged, only an hour before. A mass of ruins! The flowers were upset, the fruit, tumbled and mashed, stained the cloth and the floor, wine and lemonade dripped from the table's edge, the pink and yellow jellies, the forms of Charlotte Russe and Blancmange, and the frosted cakes and tarts were reduced to smears and crumbs. Where the gigantic pasty had stood remained only an empty dish, and above the remains, rearing, pecking, clawing, gobbling appeared six long blue-green necks which dipped and rose and dipped again the peacocks tired of waiting for their morning meal and finding the windows open had entered and helped themselves there was lorenzo the magnificent with a sponge cake in his beak and perry gobbling down a lump of blanc mange and the grand panjandrum with both claws embedded in a pyramid of macaroons Their splendid tails were draggled with cream and crumbs, and sticky with jelly. Altogether they presented a most greedy and disreputable appearance. The strangest part of the whole was that while they stuffed themselves, they preserved a dead silence, and did not express their enjoyment by one of their usual noisy screams. It was evident that they felt that the one great opportunity of their lives was going on, and that they must make the most of it. At the sound of Mr. Le Breton's shout, the peacocks startled guiltily. then they gathered up their tails as best they might, and half flying, half running, scuttled out of the windows and far across the lawn, screaming triumphantly as they went while Ottilie tumbled into a chair and laughed till she cried, "Oh, didn't they look funny?" she gasped, holding her sides, rather expensive fun replied the Seigneur ruefully but it is one comfort that we have it to ourselves. Then the humor of the situation seized on him also, and he sat down and laughed almost as hard as Otilly. "'Dear me! What a mercy that Her Majesty didn't come!' remarked Miss Niffen, in an awestruck tone. "'Good gracious!' cried Otilly, with sudden horror at the thought. "'Suppose she had! Suppose we had all walked in at the door and found the peacocks here! And of course we should!' "'Of course they would have done it just the same "'if there had been fifty queens to see them. "'How dreadful it would have been! "'Oh, there are compensations, Miss Niffin. "'I see it now.' "'So Otillie was reconciled to her great disappointment, "'though the queen has never tried to land at Sark again, "'and perhaps never will. "'For, as Otillie sensibly says, "'It is a great deal better that we should be disappointed "'than that the queen should be, "'for if she had been very hungry and most likely she would have been after sailing and all. She would not have thought that the grand panjandrum, with his feet in the macaroons, half so funny as we did, and would have been truly and really vexed. So it was all for the best, as Miss Niffen said. End of Section 6